Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey there, everybody. From KQED's politics team, I'm Scott Schaefer, and this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. On the breakdown today, as Speaker of the State Assembly, Willie Brown was the master power broker in Sacramento for 15 years. He frustrated Republicans so much, they made him the poster child for term limits, which voters passed in 1990. Termed out in Sacramento, but hardly down and out, he returned to San Francisco in 1995, serving eight years as mayor. And today... 14 years after leaving City Hall, he is still very much a mover and shaker. Some would say the mover and shaker in town, I think. some aren't happy about it. (laughs) We'll talk about all that. Willie Brown joins us here in a minute. But first, we have to talk about, as always... The crazy things that happen on a Thursday. In it Sacramento. Just seems like... It's very good for us because it gives us something to talk about, but not so good for Tony Mendoza, the senator from uh, Artesia. Artesia. Uh, and he resigned. He's out. He's yeah. out. He resigned. Uh, he'd been under a cloud for some time. And uh, before they could vote on his expulsion, he said, I'm out of here. He had a le- letter that he released saying, calling the investigation farcical uh, and saying that he couldn't get a fair hearing from politicians running for re-election. Right. And it's important to note this comes after he already filed a lawsuit against the legislature, essentially uh, challenging this whole process. You know, it is in a way he he may be right about one thing. It does seem like lawmakers are kind of building the plane as they fly it around all this Me Too stuff and how to deal with sexual harassment. But, you know, he he could have forced them to take a vote on this. I think it's interesting he didn't because there was a lot of mixed feelings among folks on both sides. Yeah, I don't think they wanted to set a precedent. For, yeah. You know, uh, they haven't done that, I think, in over 100 years. Uh, and it was that one was about bribes. And so I think if they f- think they felt if they lowered the threshold, you know, they could be next, maybe. Uh, I mean, let's not forget, like, Leland G didn't even get expelled. But he's in the big house. <laughs> and the Calderons. Yeah. But, you know, um, the person maybe with the most on the line, Kevin DeLeon, Senate President Pro Tem, uh, who was the roommate of Mendoza before this all uh, came out. He's running against Dianne Feinstein. This weekend is the Democratic Party convention, and I'm sure he wanted to get this done, uh, at least in this sense, before before the weekend. Yeah, I mean, he had been the one who actually introduced a re- resolution to expel Mendoza, which, as you said, was kind of interesting. I think there was a lot of thought going into today that, or late last night, really, that they would kind of uh, maybe give him more of a slap on the wrist. But I think you're right. I think for De Leon, running against Dianne Feinstein, uh, there's been a lot of pushback on whether he's handled this stuff well already. And I think he wanted to get out there and at least be able to say, hey, man, I'm doing everything I can. Well, and that might be a good transition to our guest uh, for this show, Willie Brown, uh, who knows a thing or two about the legislature, uh, served as speaker for 15 years, as I said. And uh, Willie Brown, welcome to Political Breakdown. Oh, thank you for having me. I got We got to say what you wore walking in. Uh, <laughs> Fabulous. Outfit. Bright red, like a fire engine red uh, coat. 
which uh, it's Chinese New Year. What do oh, I'm see. I missed that. What would you expect me there? I missed Well, you don't. We you have, you didn't have a lantern trouble. or anything. Yeah. Yeah. We would expect no less. I mean, <laughs> it's the year of the dog, and I'm not a dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll let's, get to that. Let's talk about uh, what happened in the legislature today, and, and more generally. Uh, Mendoza is gone. What do you think of the way? The Speaker, Anthony Rendon, Kevin DeLeon, the President Pro Tem in the Senate. How have they handled this since it really erupted in, in October? Well, it is clear that uh, the lower house, Mr. Rendon's space in place, has been able to get better cooperative responses from his membership, mm-hmm. uh, those who have been accused, except for one. The very last one is yet to uh, have anything happen to her. Christina Garcia. Christina Garcia. Yes. Well, that's a whole, that's a whole can of worms, too. Yeah, a whole different bag. But so far, Rendon has been um, pretty good at uh, and effective at making sure that the House survives. And after all, that's the responsibility of the leadership. On the other hand, uh, De Leon's problem was amplified by virtue of his candidacy against uh, Dianne Feinstein. Who you're close with. Right. I'm co-chair of her campaign. More than close. Yeah. Uh, It's an interesting history for her. The first time she ran when no one else endorsed her, no other elected official endorsed her in 1969, I endorsed her. She won. And at that time, when you win with the highest number of votes, you end up with president of the board. Here's a rookie female president of the board of supervisors. The very first. Why did you endorse her Every time thereafter, I've been by the stands. With her? co-chair or chair. Why did, why did you, what did you see in her back then? Well, at that time, uh, she had been very much involved with Sue Beerman and a couple of other people. Environmental activist. When I was trying to buy a house in Forest Knowles, she showed up to participate in the demonstration that went on there, pushing a buggy. In that buggy was her daughter, Catherine, who ultimately became a judge wow. here in San Francisco. She was... The father of that child was a guy named Jack Berman, a lawyer, friend of mine, criminal defense lawyer. So we were very close, and I became well acquainted with the family. And so it should not have been a surprise to anybody that I would endorse her candidacy. You know, I, I was go just ahead. Say, yeah, well, jump. on Sacramento, I'm just curious since you know you spent a lot of time up there. Um, before we move on, because I think we want to talk a lot about this stuff too, and, and your remarkable political past, but. Do you think things have changed since you've been up there? And I mean, is it is was it always as bad as it is now? Was it worse? Probably worse, I would guess. No, what you have, <laughs> frankly, you have term limits came along and swept out all of the persons who had been there forever. People, uh, the time spent in the halls of the legislature was comparable to what I ultimately spent in the halls of the legislature. A new class would be eight or ten people, not 32 or 40, right. or with everybody knowing that they're termed out within the next three years when they're there. It was a, it was a horrible problem. But how did that affect the sexual harassment? I mean, how, for it women? It affected I mean. conduct, period. There was absolutely you – know, people were more committed and involved in trying to find where do I go next, what do I do next – I don't have to wait to become chairman of Ways and Means. I don't have to wait to become anything. I don't have to wait for an office with a window. I literally can do all the things. And when you have the idea that you're entitled to everything, that takes 
all of the restrictions off on your conduct unless you're really personally strong. That's the problem in the legislature. Well, it's interesting because one thing on term limits, you know, the other thing we we hear a lot is that it shifted the balance of power because lobbyists and people who are up there for long periods of time know better the staff members how to pull the level like levers of power. Um, And I think in San Francisco, some people think, you know, you're more powerful than whoever's in room 200 in the mayor's office. I mean, is that longevity some of it, though? Like in both places, being outside can be just as powerful because you know how to play the game? Well, first and foremost, people respond to what they think are good decisions being recommended by people, whomever they are. And if if the recommendation is always one that's in the best interests of the public, whether it's Republicans, Democrats, progressives, conservatives, moderates, whatever, you will develop the reputation, and that reputation will stay with you if at all times the conclusion is you're given the best advice you can give for the benefit of the public and for the decisions that have to be made. That's the reputation over the years. That I have. Some of my friends tell me that if they wanted to defeat me, they'd ask me, How would you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, the the reputation you just described are are your friends and supporters. There's a whole other description of you from people, you remember Chris Daly when he was on the board of soups, but who, who see your career as a roadmap to taking advantage of being in public life and, you know, enriching yourself. What do you say to that? Which obviously doesn't have any real foundation because you don't last in this business if all you show is greed. You don't last in this business if there's really any real evidence of personal achievement and personal gain on the material side in this crazy business. You really do have to develop a reputation for an end product that benefits humankind, whether it's the Giants baseball stadium, whether it's Mission Bay, whether it's the Embarcadero. It doesn't matter what it is. It has to be something that goes far beyond anything that could be for your benefit. You have never been afraid of making a deal, whether it was with Republicans or Democrats, whoever. And I'm wondering, you know, over the years, did you feel ever like this isn't really in the public's best interest, but I'm going to do it? for X, Y, and Z reasons? You always have to do what's in the public's interest, period. Whether it's Democrats or Republicans participating in the process. And if you do that, you don't have to remember it and you don't have to explain it. It explains itself. It represents what will be, you will be applauded for. And you literally, every stage of the game, you have to do it that way. Otherwise, you will be soon back at Fairfield working for the labor union, (laughs) (laughs) which is where he is. (laughs) I mean, I know, you know, Scott sort of alluded to the fact that you were able to keep your speakership at one point by getting Republican votes. um, And I know that. Well, 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 back up for a second. Get it? I got the speakership. You never let it go. No, I got the speakership. (laughs) It was one. 1980 is when I won the speakership. It was the first time anybody had ever won the speakership with the House voting and not just the caucus. In the past, the caucuses had voted. I said, the rules say the House elects the speaker. 
And the only way you can have a house where all the members participate is let them help elect the leadership. I And uh, there were 48 Democrats and 32 Republicans. I got 51 votes. I got 23 Democrats and 28 Republicans. That was my 51 votes. No one had ever before got had a combination of the two parties electing the speaker. That ended any challenge to the speakership because suddenly I was selecting people on the basis of their skills and their ability to be chair and vice chair. I put in all kinds of full participation. That was the hallmark of a quality legislature and operation for a long time. We're going to come back. We have to take a short break. Uh, We'll continue our conversation with Willie Brown in just a minute. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.com dot org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And we're back. I am Marisa Lagos. This is Political Breakdown with Scott Schaefer and our guest today, Willie Brown. Um, so let's go back a little bit. We we, we kind of jump forward to your career, but you were born in 1934 in Minola, Texas. Minola. Minola. Minola, Texas. Me. And in uh, exactly 19 days, I will be 84 years old. Wow. So what do you remember from growing up there? And I mean, did you ever imagine you would go into politics? No, I did not imagine I'd go into politics. I came to California to go to Stanford and to become a teacher. I was going to teach mathematics, I thought. When I got to Stanford, I couldn't get in. I didn't have the right uh, prep courses. I didn't have the right money either. So you just struck out? And I didn't out? have the right connections. But you but, came here thinking you would just get like go in, basically. Of course. Yeah. How, how would I know any difference? Yeah. I'm, I graduated from Mineola Colored High, uh, separate but equal, prior, prior to Brown versus the Board of Education, we were still allegedly separate but equal in the educationally speaking. I had no idea that you had to, I had no, no, you know, no family background, uh, no connections. How'd you get here? How'd you get here? Well, I got here by accident, actually. I was, got a scholarship when I graduated from high school. I got a scholarship to Prairie View A&M. Uh, that is an agricultural and mechanical college in Hempstead, Texas. Not you t- did you take a wrong Hempstead. turn or what? <laughs> no. I went down there 
right after graduating because you had to go down and help farm, help raise the food. That was part of your scholarship. It was all like a workership. I'd like and, to see a picture of that. <laughs> well, you won't. <laughs> that won't be in anybody's book. Uh, and so I go down, and lo and behold, they serve you family-style food. And they had all the athletes, the football players, the basketball players, and they put a nerd a table of eight people, and at every table there was one nerd and seven people who took all the food. And obviously I was one of the 120-pound nerds. And I looked around the room, and I decided I'd talk to the other guys who were in the same. So let's go tell the president, we can't have you got to put us all at the same table or make it so that we get some of that food. In black colleges in those days, you did not approach the leadership on any issue unless you were invited to do so. They packed my clothes and put them on a trunk and sent them home. Put them in wow. a box. You got tossed out. I got thrown out. For asking I got asked to get to leave. food. Yeah. And you were invited to leave. was humiliated. Oh, she wow. just, No way she could have her son come back home. I had this uncle in California, though, who had been coming back every year with a new Roadmaster Buick with great clothing, great hats, and he was like a real Jim Dandy. And I always wanted to be like this uncle. I really didn't know how this uncle made a living. My mother knew how this uncle made a living, and she didn't want me to be anywhere near this uncle. But she was so embarrassed that she yielded to let me come live with him. How did he make a living? He was a gambler. He gambled full time. He came out here in the early days of the Second World War. They didn't draft, really, black folk. He and his brother, her two brothers, came here to work at the shipyard because you mm-hmm. did go to work at the shipyard or you go to work at the naval station or you go to work where they load bombs and, and like they did up at the... Dangerous. Uh, that's yeah. Uh, Concord. Yeah. And so he came and they interviewed you at the job site. They interviewed my uncle and his brother. They took his brother and said, you might want to come back next week and let's chat you out again. He started to walk out and there was a pay truck. In those days, nobody got paid by by check. You got paid by the pay truck. He watched him pay the pay truck, and he noticed that there was a honky-tonk or a bar not too far down uh, from where the pay truck stopped, and these guys would go down right after and have a drink, and he, when he got down there checking it out, he noticed that there was a dice game going on, and at that dice game, he watched for a minute, and some guy threw snake eyes, and somebody said, your point is a two. He knew right off that they didn't know how to gamble. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn from him? He never got interviewed again because he never went back. He, he came is. only for payday. <laughs> what did you learn from him? He was that just your uncle Izzy? Is that his name? Uncle Itzy. Izzy. Itzy. It was yeah. Uncle Itzy. Well, he was mindful of what his sister had admonished him. Said, "You cannot ruin this kid. You got to, my son. You really got to help him." Uh, gain access. He said, listen, I don't know anything about any of these schools. He said, somebody told me about a college called Stanford down in Palo Alto. You get on a bus and go down there and see if they won't let you in. He had no idea that you had to go through all of Fortunately, the guy that I ran into at Stanford who was in the admission office was a guy named Duncan Gillies. He was actually a teacher at San Francisco State. He worked part-time down at um, Stanford. He told me right off the bat after interviewing me for an hour, he said, yeah, you're never going to get into Stanford. And not only that, you probably can't afford it unless you do something different with your evidence of money. 
He says, but San Francisco State is dying for students, and it's near where you live. It's in the heat <laughs> in San Francisco, and and I can get you in there. Uh, and so I'm literally the first affirmative action admittee wow. of San Francisco State. I never took a test to get in, I, no, none of the above. I got there. I went up. He enrolled me at San Francisco State College, it was called, and they had almost, you know, nobody. And that's where you met John Burton. That's where I, met. I went to school. I was in the same drill team with John Burton. Drill team? Yeah, we were in, we were in, you, in order to avoid the draft. You had to figure out some way to get there. And so let's ROTC, Air ROTC. We both enrolled in, and they stacked you right out of the box by alphabetical names. And so, so it was Brown, Brown and Burton. Burton. Yeah. So, and then you end up going to law school. Did your mom, was she still alive when you got elected to public office? Oh, yeah. My mom was here. My mom came. She came. <laughs> my mother's a funny woman. <laughs> I, in 1994, I lost, in 1974, I lost the speakership. My roommate double-crossed me. Whoa. My best friend in the legislature was a guy named Bob Moretti, who decided to run for governor when everybody in the world was running for governor. And he was the speaker. I was chair of Ways and Means, and we had the votes on everything, except that Jerry Brown beat him in the primary, and with that, we lost the votes. I lost the speakership. Because at the last minute, Leo McCarthy's group stepped in and offered the chair of rules to my roommate. And my roommate, who was supposed to nominate me, double-crossed me. So I lost by two votes. How long were your roommates after that? Uh, He was not allowed to come back home. (laughs) That was that. That's Kevin Durant and Tony Mendoza. (laughs) Something similar. And so I lost the speakership at that time. And and then for the next four or five years, I had to work my way out of the dungeon. But when the people who had helped knife me decided to take Leo's job, Leo came to me for help. And um, he had been nice to me after a fact because he had trouble on his side with people who had bad reputations for doing deals. And he came to me and he offered me the chairmanship of the finance of of the uh, tax committee, revenue tax. Then he offered me the majority leader, and I was never McCarthy's supporter. He did so on the basis that it was for the image of the house, which really established me and put Got me you. in good shape. What uh, you you came back to San Francisco, you ran for mayor. Uh, you now you're a power broker. Yeah, what do you What are you what doing? Are you? Who's paying your bills, Willie Brown? <laughs> what do you do, Willie Brown? What do you do all day? Well, you know, let me tell you. It's a lot of fun. First and foremost, I really do wander around the city to get information for that column that I do. <laughs> yeah, we want to talk about. You really that. are talking oh, to cab drivers I, and I, Oh yeah, oh, homeless yeah, people. Oh, yeah. And I'm a great supporter of the cab drivers because when I was in law school, I drove a cab. I was a cab driver. It was $11 gate at that time, you know. Yeah, I drove a cab. I was also a playground director. Burton and I were playground directors in San Francisco. I never got a nickel from anybody in my family except my uncle briefly for when I was in. And we lived in the public housing projects. We lived in the public housing projects. Which one? Uh, West Side, Mm -hmm. 2547 Sutter, apartment 326. And uh, I hope one day that they 
canonize it. <laughs> <laughs> but you're still, I mean, you're still a lawyer. You still have clients, Well, right? wait, wait, wait. Let me go All on right, to tell go, you what I on. do. So my column is, is the, you know, is the real one, is the real deal. What is I that? also what does that am mean? on boards. I'm on several boards. I'm on uh, a board that is on the threshold, literally on the threshold, of finding a method by which to treat sickle cell anemia. Mm-hmm. Sickle cell anemia is a disease that affects black people more than anybody else in the world. A doctor named Ted Love came to me from the people who did the, the, the business of trying to regenerate. You know, the one Stem time cell. it was located mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then they moved over. Yeah. My friend, Artoris, oh, told yeah. Love about me. He said, if you really want to have somebody on your board who can traverse the legislative process to see whether or not you can gain eligibility for research dollars. He did it when, when, the, when HIV was first an issue in the 80s. I got the first research dollar. I got it out of a Republican governor, George Duke Majin. And you talk about people criticizing you. Yes, I made a deal to get, but I got $50 million dollars for the wow. first money ever yeah. for AIDS research, and it wasn't called AIDS then; it was HIV then, and then it went on and it was grid, it, yeah, initially, right. it grid. was grid initially, and uh, but Marcus Conant and and Paul Vobedine and those people were really instrumental in helping me get there. So I serve on that board, and that board is really a good one. I serve on the Smithsonian board, I serve on Cubic board, I serve on a lot of boards, and you get paid for some of these, right. and it's reasonably well, and then. I really have a very favorable position in that almost everybody that represents anybody in any area of government calls and asks, how would you do this? What would you do? And they pay me when I tell them how to do it. Yeah, how much does a phone call with Willie Brown cost? I work for $1,000 an hour. Wow. Is that right? Yeah. The Chronicle, I'm sure, does not pay you $1,000 an hour. They don't get an hour of my time either. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I worked at the Chronicle when your column started, and you know, there's a lot of people who feel like because you have these clients and you have this column in this really prominent place. Look at him smirky. He yeah, just loves this question. You know, like that you have this position, and that you know, the rest of us in journalism have to say, you know, if we're making any extra money or who who we're speaking for. Like, how can people trust that this is your opinion? We don't know just... who you're, you know, who you're working for. Well, and you know, one thing you can be certain of that when I give a position on any issue, it is mine and mine alone but, but because why? I don't have to remember it. So you, no matter what you do, you're going to get an accurate response from me on every issue. <laughs> and I have tried my best to be as careful as possible to make sure uh, that there is a, n- never any uh, stepping over the line by me on any issue. And I've been doing a column since July 1, 2008, mm-hmm. you know, the Chronicle hasn't been sued. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That's, that's you know, that reminds me. There. That reminds me. <laughs> been sued? I mean, yeah, that's a win. Let me tell you that. <laughs> that reminds me of they when you left City Hall. That. When you left City Hall yes. in 2004, right? I remember you telling January me. January 8, 2004, you, 12, 13. And I came into your office and we sat down. And one of the things I asked you was, what are you most proud of? And you said to me, I didn't get indicted. (laughs) (laughs) That was just the line that I used. (laughs) I just thought, but I'm telling you, in this crazy business, uh, 
you really do have to be fully conscious at all times of your conduct because your conduct could be the thing that destroys your reputation, ruins your family, you and your family. I have wonderful relatives, wonderful people, and I don't ever, ever want them to have to apologize for being a relative of mine. Yeah. And that's a high order. We are short on time, but I want to ask you quickly about the mayor's race. Uh, London Breed is your candidate. And as you well know, there's been criticism on the on the left among progressives that there hasn't been a free and fair, so-called free and fair election since 2003 when Gavin Newsom run, ran. And he was your protege. And then Ed Lee got plucked from Hong Kong. And now London Yeah, I Breed. think that's what he was doing for a few years with Ed Lee. Yeah. So, so is that a fair criticism? No, not at all. Why? Yeah, let me advise. First and foremost... The rules are the rules, and everyone has to play by the rules. You have to play by the rules. And the fact that you might play by the rules much better than somebody else. The left in this town has been consistently on the short end because the nature of what they advocate doesn't address the needs of all the people of San Francisco. Give me an example. You have to, well, let's start just for openers You've got to know that you cannot just do housing that you control and you don't really do for everybody. Affordable housing in this town, until I came along, had been pretty much the providence of just a few nonprofits. I stepped in with a bond measure in 96, got a $100 million bond measure passed. I negotiated the way in which that bond measure would be paid back. Tenants and landlords pay. It was fabulous, and that's how you make a difference. Willie Brown, we are out of time. Unfortunately, right. we could speak we could, another, we, you know, yeah. Maybe when we're done, we'll just keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> that does it for Political Breakdown. Make sure you don't miss an episode. Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on Apple Podcasts. You can also find it on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Our politics team includes Katie Orr. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, and our engineer is Katie McMurrin. Ethan Lindsay is our managing editor, and Holly Kernan is the vice president of news. I'm Marisa Lago. And I'm Scott Schaefer. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown on KQED. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.